Um, even before you came, you were worthy. But your coming just confirms your worthiness. And so we just want to make sure that people hear the name of God and understand who we're talking about, who gives us the ability to see that you're great and acknowledge your greatness. And that's our Lord. So, Lord God, let the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in your sight. Oh, Lord God, my strength and my redeemer and whom I trust. In Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen, amen, amen. Open your Bibles to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2. Praise the Lord. We're on our our core values still. Um, We are on our core values, and we are on the core value called commitment. Say commitment. This This is interesting core value for us because I believe we as a church have a reductionistic understanding of our core values. When I say reductionism, reductionism is a principle in which you take the whole of something and take a part of it and emphasize it without all of it. In other words, it's like somebody in salvation only emphasizing trusting in Christ. As we know that's true, if you just share the gospel as trusting in Christ, As true as that aspect of the gospel is, it's a reduction of it. Because if you don't talk about sin, you don't talk about holiness, if you don't talk about all of the, some of those other things in the gospel that makes trusting Christ mindful and uh, a realization and true, it's already true, but being able to connect with it in its fullest facet is a very, very important thing. And so I believe there are two core values that we focus on, our core values a Christocentrism, commitment, communion, conversions, culturally relevant ministry. And, and one of the things that we see with that is many times in the church, we tend to focus on two core values. I've noticed that with us, even with myself, is we tend to focus on whether or not we're Christocentric or whether or not we're in community. I rarely hear us really challenge each other and talk about the, all of the core values. And so even as we talk today about commitment, it just, as, as I was going through this, it was just re-energizing me and why we chose this as a core value. Um, it, it is a powerful core value. And the more and more I look at our core values, um, I, I really see how interconnected they are. They're very interconnected. Um, and it's almost impossible to be committed to one and without be committed to, being really committed to all of them. And, and, and so I'm, I'm, I'm enjoying um, our ability to kind of go through this today and talk about the idea of commitment. Say commitment again. <laughs> Let's read this text. We're going to get into two verses today, and we're going to really spend some real, real time really walking through um, this idea of commitment. Commitment. In Acts chapter 2, verses 42 and, for, and verses 43, um, this is a very, very powerful passage for us to even think through. As a young church, it says, And they, that is the church, The people of God devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and and the prayers. That's powerful. He says, and all came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. Stop. We're going to just spend time in those. Um, let's, Let's give some background and kind of like a backdrop to this. The day before this, 
just the day before, Jesus told his disciples he was dipping. He gave them the peace sign, and then the elevator came from heaven, called a cloud, and it came down and settled. And while he was talking to them, he said, all right, now, holla at y'all in a few. You know, um, some of y'all going to die. Sorry. I'll see you in a minute, though. Um, jumps on the cloud. As he goes up, he's still talking. And then he just kind of, I don't know. I mean, I wonder what Jesus kind of, how he stood, you know, while he was going up on the cloud. But the cloud, he kind of took the elevator cloud, or you want to call it a uh, skyboard to heaven. He went to heaven and went to the right hand of God the Father. And he made them a promise. And they experienced that promise was a person, his spirit, that he sent upon his people. And so they have experienced the coming of the spirit creating the church from a practical standpoint. So in Acts chapter 2, the church is created. And so the church right now is in a deep honeymoon period. And so they're experiencing, I believe, some, some, some wonderful and beautiful things going on. Peter just preached. And so Peter preached. And before this, it was only 120 people on planet Earth that believed in Jesus. 120 people. The next day, a minimum of 3,000 people came to know Jesus as Savior. So you have 120 people who have walked with Jesus for three years plus. Now you have 3,000 people who are absolutely new Christians. Can you imagine having 120 solid Christians and 3,000 babes in Christ immediately? So we, you're talking about hospital. Um, you're talking about issues. I mean, this is a major responsibility that they're beginning to experience. But one of the things that you see in the nature of how things are done in the New Testament as it relates to one of the things that God wants from his people is he really wants, even in that infant stage, even in this period of time, uh, God always wants from his people a level of stability. He, he wants there to be a level of stability and consistency within their lives that reflects what they've been born into. And so, and, so, and so you'll see Paul, <coughs> when he writes to the Romans, he says, I pray, <coughs> in Romans 16, 25, he said, I pray that our God may, uh, that, that he may uh, put, make you stable according to the preaching of, or strengthen you according to the preaching of our gospel. And so Paul is always concerned about the stability of the church. When you look in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 11, this young, this young church is going through frustrating circumstances, and he says, I pray that God may count you worthy of your calling. I'm not going to pray for you to get out of the difficulty. I'm going to pray that you're faithful in the midst of it. So he said, I want you stable. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verses 1 through 8, you see Paul sending Timothy there to check on the faith of the believers. He said, I sent Timothy in order that I may check on your faith. In other words, are you remaining committed to what was laid out before you when we first came to you? You see Paul and Barnabas in Acts chapter 14, verses 21 through 23. You see them saying, let's go back and strengthen and encourage the churches that we've planted. And, and encourage the saints. And so you see them having a great concern about commitment and stability of the believers um, when, when they first came. So, so you see in this passage um, that, that, that that same idea is being pushed forth in a very, in a very, very practical way. And you'll see this all the way through the past. I got one point today. I got just one point. If, if for those of y'all like points, I got a point. And so, and so, and so, um, I'm going to give you that point. 
And that point is, I'm going to just spend the rest of the time walking through it theologically and practically. Commitment must be comprehensive. That's the point. Commitment must be comprehensive. It's interesting in this first part of this passage is that he says to them, he says, he says, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. Now, this is a powerful, powerful, powerful word from God. Powerful word from God. Now, 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 as he talks about this idea of devotion, let's, let's, this is where this word devote, devoted is where we have gotten our principle or core value of commitment from. Now, now, now the, cent, the central idea of this word is beautiful because it means to be loyal. It, it means to remain anchored and connected. It means pay persistent attention to. To cling to, to persevere in, to endure, to tarry, to cleave faithfully to someone, something, or some place. Insisting on staying in close proximity to. It means steadfastness and faithfulness. Say faithfulness. And outgoings of the Christian life. That's interesting. Faithful in the outgoings of the Christian life, to busy oneself with. I like one translation, I mean, one definition. It says, it means to, to be a sticky adhesive. I'm, I don't know if y'all remember the old crazy glue commercials from back in the day. Some of y'all may don't remember that from the early 80s. The guy would put on a, 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 a construction hat. Now, he was crazy. I, I don't know what he was thinking when he did this. And he put a little thing on top of it. And then he put crazy glue on it. And to show you how, how strong crazy glue was, he would get on a beam at the top of a building and he would grab a hold of it, stick himself up there, hold it for a little while, and then just kind of hang there and look around to let you know it was crazy. I'm pretty sure it was camera effects. I'm pretty sure. I, wouldn't, I don't believe in nothing that much but Jesus. And so, but, but, but what's interesting about the commercial is, is it was trying to show the, the type of sticky adhesive and how much work it would take to pull crazy glue off of something. That's what this word devotion means. Devotion means to stick. To be committed to. In other words, faithfulness. It's a beautiful term. Faithfulness is one of the attributes of God. Beautiful attribute. And we'll see how it centers in Jesus. So a proverb, Proverbs 20 verse 6 says something powerful. It says, Many a man proclaims his own steadfast love, but a faithful man who can find? Bible teaches that faithful people are a dime a dozen. Dime a dozen. In other words, the Bible says that there are a maximum amount of smack talkers in the world. A lot of people proclaim, somebody told you, I love you, I, I will love you forever. I'm going to be in love and it's going to be us, me and you. And they weren't faithful to love you forever. I said so much crazy stuff when I was in high school. I was getting engaged. I was engaged like three times without a ring in high school, you know. We're going to be together. You're going to be my wife. You're going to be my wife. All right. You know, just as unsaved and unsanctified and trifling as I could be. You know what I'm saying? But, but proclaiming faithfulness out of emotionalism, not pragmatics. So here in this passage, it's talking about that reality. Proverbs 3, 3, and 4 says, 
<coughs> Most people go to five and six. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean out into your honor. And all your ears and eyes him. He will direct your plans. Read verses three and four. <coughs> it says, let not steadfast love and faithfulness forsake you. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart. So you will find favor and good success in the sight of God and man. Powerful. Those words in the Hebrew is a, is a, is a hendiadist. I mean, it's trying to powerfully push towards a terminology of saying the, the, the centrality of faithfulness. The word there is chesed, which is a word that talks about usually God's loyalty and love towards us. And the sage in Proverbs is talking to young men here, interestingly enough, about being consistent, being faithful. And he says, what happens is, is faithfulness gives you credibility. And it gives you a credibility with two groups of people, the Godhead and God's people, or people in general. And we see the Lord Jesus Christ in Luke 2.52, in his incarnation growing, just as Proverbs, Solomon, the sage, is saying to these young men to grow in faithfulness or devotion or commitment. It says, Jesus Christ grew in both knowledge and wisdom with both God and man. So even Jesus in his incarnation had to submit to the devotion principle. No one is exempt from commitment. No one is exempt from devotion. No one is exempt from faithfulness. And so it's beautiful in, this, in these passages as we look at this idea of faithfulness. In Habakkuk chapter 2 verse 4. Um, I, I call him the, I call him the, I, you know, he's an interesting prophet because he's the fussing prophet. He's the prophet that had the first audacity to talk smack to God like he was crazy. At least Job was nice. He wasn't. And God had to shut him down. But in chapter two, verse four, he says, behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him, but the righteous shall live by Faith. Now, the idea of faith here is interesting because it's not what we would think of as faith. It actually means faithfulness here is the emphasis. And so there's a sense when we talk about faithfulness that there's an idea of consistency in the midst of adversity. In other words, not stopping something because something happened. Commitment. Commitment is not seasonal. It's supposed to be consistent. And so when we talk about we value commitment as a church, this is a big part of who we must be because we live in a time period where everybody wants everything now. And I, 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 and I, don't, I don't know about you, but anything worth seeing God do, do take, does takes time. It takes time to see God do some things and do some powerful things. I'm getting a little ahead of myself. But, but, but faithfulness is this idea that we need to really zoom in on and really understand what that looks like. So now that says they devoted themselves to something in particular. Now, and so, so we saw kind of a ground lay, uh, layout of, of faithfulness and consistency and devotion, right? And so, and so we've seen that. Now Luke is going to tell us what faithfulness looks like. He tells them what they were devoted to. He said he, they were devoted to the apostles' teaching. Stop. Check this out. Most times I've read this passage, I, and I've read this passage when it says they committed themselves to the apostles' teaching as devoting themselves to information. In other words, the, 
In other words, they got the information of sound doctrine that Jesus Christ passed down to the apostles. And they were given credit for being devoted to the apostles' teaching because they accepted the information theologically. But in this passage, that is far from the truth. It, when it says they were devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching, it means that they were giving themselves over to the information, but the information was transforming them, and they had in-depth practical ability to apply. And one of the things that I'm afraid of here at our church is that, is that many times because we're able to articulate a doctrine, we give ourselves, uh, we give ourselves application value. In other words, because I can, I can word it a certain way. Because I can say that thing or put that thing out there or communicate it in a particular way, I'm giving a check as actually applying it. But I guarantee you that these people that were devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching couldn't all articulate it pretty well in their verbiage. As important as that is, we should be able to communicate truth. But when you look at the text, it doesn't talk about the hypostatic union. It doesn't talk about Trinitarianism. It's going to be some real grimy, gully, grits, practical things that you're going to see them flesh out. That shows commitment, not just bump gums about what commitment is. It's powerful here. And, 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 so, and so this is what we need to become when we talk about this idea of commitment. We, we, we need to really begin measuring commitment based on that. God is not at the judgment seat of Christ going to judge the believer based on what we're able to articulate. You could talk all the smack before the judgment seat of Christ. Yeah, you know, God, you know what I'm saying? I was black and and I believe in your, I believe that you're holy. I believe you. He said, I know that. He said, okay. He said, but now I want to talk to you about how you practice that. The judgment seat of Christ is going to be heavy on application. Rewards are based on application, not intake of information. So it's both and. Now, we're not, now don't hear me saying we're not supposed to be in the world. We're not supposed to know theology. But I think we've become lopsided. And we got to be very, very careful of giving one application value when we don't when we only value it from an informational standpoint. Now, well, now, how do how do I get there? Now, when we talk about the apostles teaching, they were committing themselves to the apostles teaching. The apostles teaching is really Jesus's teaching. Really, what, what Jesus taught. Now, before Jesus was ascend, was ascended to heaven, John did something the other the others didn't do. Excuse me. Um, John did something that the others, sorry about that. John did something, it was just bugging me. I couldn't wait. Um, and, 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 and Jesus spent, come back, come back to me. Come back to me. Um, Jesus spent an inordinate amount of time preparing the believers how to deal with his departure. And he spent time with his core group, 120, 70, 12 and 3. 120, 70, 12 and 3. And his porridge was deeper as it got, as the decrease went of numbers. And we see that the apostles are teaching things that Jesus taught to them, teaching it to God's people. Now, now, now the question, the question on the floor is what in the world was the Lord Jesus Christ teaching them? Well, in the upper room discourse, you'll see that Jesus talks about the Holy Spirit 
it, it, uh, in John 14, it's going to, uh, actually John uh, 15, the last few verses, it says that the Holy Spirit will come and he will lead us into all truth. Now, most of the times when we read that passage, we believe that the Holy Spirit is only going to lead us into the right information. That's not what that's saying. It's saying, yes, the right information, but also the right application of the information that he brings with him. And so the Holy Spirit comes to bring truth, leading us into truth and in how we live out truth. If you're not living out truth, you're not in truth because God is concerned about walking in truth and understanding truth. And your maturity quotient is based on what the Lord Jesus Christ has given in those past. We see several things and he teaches it in such a gospel centered way. Jesus in John 13 teaches them gospel centered service of one another. You'll see in John 14, verse, verse 6, Jesus teaches them a gospel-centered understanding of himself as being central. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father unless he comes through me. Then he talks about gospel-centered empowerment. John 14, verses 15 through 17. He gives them a gospel-centered understanding. Through my cross, what I'm going to bring is my spirit is going to come once I've gone to the cross, once I've been buried, raised from the dead, ascended. I'm going to send the spirit, and he's going to empower you to do what I say. He's going to lead you in to the ability to practice what you preach. But not only that, in, in John 15, 1 through 11, he gives them a gospel-centered understanding of identity. Apart from me, you can't do anything. I am the true vine. My father is the gardener. And so he walks them through that understanding of identity. Bearing fruit is our identity, our ID card. Then he takes them through gospel-centered sacrificial commitment to one another in John 15, 12 through 17. And then he takes them through a gospel-centered response to adversity in John 15, 18 through 25. That's just a little bit. Now, I could keep going. But when you look, and the reason why I know this is what they were teaching, because you see practically what they're doing in Acts 2. You see the service of one another. You see the centrality of Jesus. You see God, the empowerment of the Spirit. You see identity, them identifying one another. You see sacrificial commitment, and you see a response in adversity. In other words, you, you see biblically that they were really relaying these things to God's people as it relates to a comprehensive gospel-centered lifestyle that finds itself in the center of faithfulness. Now let's talk about what this looks like. What is, he, what is he calling them faithful to? Faithful to the doctrine in what ways? He gives several ways here in the passage. First it says, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship. Now, we talked about koinonia a few weeks ago. Very powerful. Principle, commitment, or koinonia, community, doing life together. So we saw that, that, that he talked about that. And what's, what's interesting is that Jesus taught them community practically by doing life with them, and they were able to properly replicate that when people came in. And so what's so powerful is Jesus' core group, when the 3,000 plus began coming, what they were able to do is they so had Jesus' DNA that when people came, they were prepared to translate that to the people that were coming, even though they weren't perfect in it. However, they were able to get in its seed state the core values of the heart of Jesus Christ to all of these new converts coming to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. 
And then the first thing he showed, they showed them is he, he said they had their gospel-centered community. They were faithful to community. They were faithful to one another in their relationships. But then it says they were faithful also to the breaking of bread. Over here it says, and they were breaking the bread. Now this is powerful. Here. I know I keep saying everything's powerful, but it all is. You see here the breaking of bread. You see Jesus <coughs> breaking bread after his ascension in Luke 24, 28 through 35. And when he broke the bread, he held it up. <coughs> they didn't know who he was. He had communion with them, and they were able to recognize who he was. When you talk about the breaking of bread in the New Testament, many believe several things. But there's a principle of what some call a love feast, um, which the brethren believe in. Brethren churches believe in what's called the love feast. <laughs> now, the love feast was a time when everybody potluck. So, so, that, so that means that, means that, um, that, means that Mary made some mac and cheese and brought to the table. You know what I'm saying? Missy made some pound cake. That means Jen Tinsley brought some brownies. You know, you know what I'm saying? I don't know who else can cook in here, but, you know, mom do made some crab legs. You know what I'm saying? Steamed them jokers and put Old Bay over, over them and melted some butter in a little cup. Brought it to us. Amen, somebody. And imagine all of the Christians coming in in the aroma of food everywhere. And they say, you got to taste this. You got to taste this. You got to enjoy this. And some people are like, don't tell them not to cook again. Um, but, but just bring you bring you or buy something from the market that's already done and you come and contribute to the table that way. But then in the midst of that time, in the midst of that time, the apostles would stand up in the midst of that meal and they would centralize the meal on communion. And they would take the Lord's Supper together. And what breaking of bread represents is actually something beautiful. Consistent gospel reflection. During this time, they would reflect on the gospel. That's what communion is about. And they would have gospel reflection. The breaking of bread is making sure they were committed faithfully to making sure that they were folding the gospel into the batter of their lives. As beautiful as the resurrection is... They didn't remember, Jesus didn't tell us to remember the resurrection because I, I think that's the easy part to remember. And he got up and he got up from the grave. We like that part <clears throat> because we like to identify with his resurrection but not his sufferings. And so they remind them during communion, Jesus died. Guess who else will have to? And the believers sober up. What area of your life you have to die in? These, the bread and the, the wine is there. And believers are like, dang. They're not feeling bad because Jesus took care of their ability to die and it means something. Because his death meant something first. And because they're walking in alignment with his death, they're meditating on his death as the means to remain committed to what he is told the disciples to teach them to be committed to. <laughs> and so they had time of gospel reflection. As a matter of fact, they didn't just do it around the apostles. They had spontaneous communion services. They were just sitting around. Let's meditate on the Lord's death. Go up on the top of the refrigerator and get some Wonder Bread and, you know, get some. What we got over there? Just squish some of them grapes. And then they had gospel reflection. 
and they meditated on the gospel and they chewed on the gospel. That's what we must be committed to. Gospel reflection. The centrality of the gospel's work in our lives. Is it really central? That's what communion is about. Gospel reflection. And they did it consistently. They were committing themselves to it as central to their lives. So they had consistent gospel reflection. But not only consistent gospel reflection, it says next that they were faithful. They were committed to prayer. Now, interesting enough, it says the prayers, plural, definitive article and plural. Now, this is powerful. Because that means that they were committed to consistent dependence and spiritual formation. What I like about this, though, is it was unorganized. This is powerful because it says prayer is plural. That means that they weren't waiting for anybody to organize a prayer gathering. That they had so had a passion for their dependence on God that they were taking responsibility as a community together. So you would come into a gathering with cats getting together and do was like, man, I just, we just need to, we just need to chop, let's pray. They start holding hands and praying and you know, then they just began going at it with the Lord. Then somebody was around and was like, dang, I feel a little left out. I want to get up in that. And so they began praying together and started getting it in, in prayer. And so when you would come around the believers, it says prayers, that means it saturated everything that they were doing. They were always marking their dependence. Let me tell y'all, y'all don't have to wait on us to call a solemn assembly. Y'all don't have to wait on us to do a prayer time. You, based on this text, can go and say, we need to get it in together. Somebody come in, how you feeling, man? Man, I had a hard week. Let's, hey, y'all. Hey, yo, 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 Steve, come in, come in. Come in, Leah, let's go over here and let's pray for this brother. Kladokin, they getting it in in prayer. Lighten that cat up in his grill with prayer. It's, can you hear the aroma of believers? No one got in the front and said, it's time to pray. Believers just took it upon themselves because of the DNA of their commitment to say, we want to be so dependent on God, we want to be marked by prayer as a part of our life. Come here, let's pray. Come here, let's get it in. Some people were just like, I ain't got nothing going on. I just want to thank God. Father, we thank you. You're good. You're all. And they just start going before him. And then other believers like, oh, yeah, oh, yeah, oh, yeah. Come on, let's go. And so they start crowding over, saying, whoa, let's get it in. going like this. Come on, go before him. Go before him. And they all started getting it in together. Disorganized, rugged, 3,000 new believers don't know. God, you're dope. You're a beast. I don't even know what I'm supposed to say, but I like this thing called Christianity. I love you. Oh, man. Like, you're so freaking great, God. I mean, like, yesterday I was sinning a lot, and like today, like, watch. Like, what? Other believers, like, shaking their head, like, let them pray. Just let them get it out. We'll talk about, you know, forms of prayer, order, all that later. But there was a powerful commitment to prayer. It didn't say it was just the 120. It just said them. <laughs> what if our church was like that? What if our church, you came in, people on the front steps when it's warm, just praying with each other? What if, what if in the bathroom somebody's crying at the bathroom sink? and trying to get themselves together to fake their way back out in the gathering. And instead of just walking past them, 
Don't ask them nothing. Father, I don't know what's going on right now. Maybe you're just being celebrated or something's being grieved. And you just begin to call on God for someone. Prayers. Prayers. Plural. Not prayer, singular. We need to be a praying church. Praying church. This is what they were committed to. Beyond organization. It was something that they felt a need to do. Somebody said, pray for me that got it. And you go ahead and you do it right then. Don't leave no gap. Don't leave no gap. I can stay on that longer. But I pray that, that none of us complain about this, but we just dive in and do it. Let's just do it. Let's just do it. Then he goes to the next area. Now, this is interesting because it says, and, and verse 43 says, and all came upon every soul. Stop there. Stop again. Wow. Wish I had time. All was on every soul. The Greek word here is phobeo, which means fear. Now, this fear here is interesting. Because even the translators understand that there's a different sense of what they're talking about fear here. Because of the apostles' teaching, <laughs> because of the fellowship that they were experiencing, because of the centrality of the gospel continuously being reminded to them, and because of the prayers, something happened to the believers. They had a sense of awe. Now, most people connect the all to the signs that come afterwards. But in, in the sense of the language, the language actually that, that, that dead there, that, that and, connects it to the preceding clause. So they're always connected to how the believers were committed. The word there for commitment literally means to be blown away by God. Blown away. I like the way C.J. Mahaney says, he says, evidences of grace. You know, I have several, like God has one unpardonable sin. I got several. One I can't stand is when people can't see God at work. Refuse to. That their gripes are disproportionate. So high. So frustrated that you can never get a systemic sense of encouragement or the grace of God. They were so into looking around the community, noticing that God was at work and got rocked. Now, you got new believers that weren't taught everything at this point, so they were very rough around the edges. Yet, they still saw God at work and was able to evidence a grace. That dude was hitting the pipe. Look at that cat in the prayer circle now. Tears rolling down his eyes. Look at homegirl. She was a freak back in. But look at, look at homeboy. He was a player. Look at him. Look, they gone through a hard time in their marriage. But look how Jesus' grace is on them. 
You are not where you need to be if you can't see God at work. If you can't evidence God's work among his people, you need to be careful of yourself. It's very, very important as us as Christians that we look for, we need to be scouts for the grace of God. Looking around, communicating to one another. I see God working on you. And it needs to be dominant. It, it, it needs to be heard, seen, or oh, just a standing back and like, wow, look at our God. Look what he's doing. Look at the souls that are meeting Jesus. Look at the, 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 look at the living God working. I like the way <coughs> C.J. Mahaney, I'm going to steal this from him. I like when he talks about this idea of evidences of grace. He says, first let's turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. I mean, one. This is powerful. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. First Corinthians. Since Paul called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother Sosthenes to the church of God, underline that, that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, underline that, sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints, underline that, together with those who, who in every place Call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. Grace to you and peace from God, our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God, underline that, that was given you in Christ Jesus, that in every way you were enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge that y'all were good, y'all great speakers, even as the testimony about Christ is confirmed among you, so that you are not lacking in any spiritual gift. You're very spiritually gifted as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who, is sustain, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful. God is faithful. God is faithful by whom you were called into fellowship with his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Now, it's funny that he's able to call them called, able to call them saints, able to even recognize that the grace of God is upon them but these, this church, they were hellions. If you go to chapter 6, they were letting sin run rampant in the church. There were homosexuals in the church praying in front of public worship. There were people committing adultery. There were people committing fornication. There were greedy people. There were, there were embezzlers and there were thieves still practicing their thievery. And he had the audacity in the midst of all that. Now, we're not justifying sin, but it's interesting that he starts theologically with the ability to start with something nice. And he said, even in the midst of everything I'm about to tell you, there is a deep evidence of God's grace on y'all as ragged as you are. Even the apostle, even the apostle himself, as much as he would have to plow through with the Corinthians, he saw evidences of God's grace and even said, and he wasn't lying, he's under inspiration, the Holy Spirit would have beat him up. He said, he said, I, when I pray and I think of you, this is how deep... 
he evidenced God's grace is he's able to thank God for his grace upon them, even though he knows that they're not walking in his grace like they should. How dare us? We better not become our old, our old griping church. Not able to see God at work. And celebrate it highly. Celebrate his work in the lives of one another. Like what C.J. Mahaney says, he says, most people are more aware of the absence of God than the presence of God. He says, most people are more aware of the presence of sin than evidences of grace. He says, what a privilege and joy it is in pastoral ministry and small group ministry to turn one's attention to ways in which God is at work. Because so often people are unaware of God's work. He said, and much of God's work in our lives is quiet. It's not spectacular. He said, it's really obvious to the individual. He says, and normally it is incremental and takes place over a length a period of time. See, see, many of us in our youthfulness want everything done today. Commitment can only be seen when you hang around long enough to see God work something out. See, I like the old church when the lady on the front with the tambourine and everybody mad because she's celebrating too much. Her gray hair sticking out, and she, she dressed, she got a dress up to her neck, to her ankles. But if you look in her eyes, in her husband's eyes, you'll see years of disappointment. You'll see years of struggle. You'll see years of people falling and hurting and pain. But if you look close enough, you'll see them waiting around to see what God is going to do. He's waiting for us to wait. Many of us look at the exit door too much. That's a punk move. It's easy to leave when something happens. Yeah, that's easy. When everything's going well and the sun is shining and there's no thunder and lightning, you can smile and you can announce your commitment. But when hell shows its ugly head, when Hades shows its ugly head, when sin comes out and death comes out, then the commitment begins to wane. Commitment is not commitment until it is tested. Are you ready for some tests? I remember in the movie Taken. Daddy called a little girl. The girl called her daddy and said, Honey, they're going to take you. And she started screaming and hollering. He said, calm down. And he began to walk her through what she needed to do. Well, see, this church here is in its infant stage. So this is where it's easy to really celebrate and worship and do community, do life together. But the church at Smyrna dealt with something else. The church at Smyrna 
Jesus said to Jesus get made a phone call to the church. And he says, hell is about to break loose for 10 days. And some of you are going to be thrown in prison. And he gives them one plan of action. Be faithful. What's the plan, Jesus? I mean, what's the infrastructure of that going to be like? He, be faithful. I hope we can be committed to this for core value because we've already been empowered to do it through Jesus' cross. Hebrews chapter 3 verse 2 says, Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful in him to appoint, faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses was faithful in all God's house. It says in verse 6, but Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. And we are his house. If you, if indeed we hold fast, that means faithfulness. Our confession, that does not mean believe the right stuff. Hold fast our confession means live it out. And our boasting and our hope. We have a savior who put a cross on his back. Now, I don't know what it was like for him to go up Golgotha's hill. But he was out of breath before his arms got stretched. And I don't know what was on my, my master, our master's mind. But as he went up Golgotha's hill, dragging that cross and being helped by Simon, I can't imagine what was going through his mind. I don't know what was going through his mind, but he was faithful. He walked all the way up there. A long walk. Went up the hill. The God of heaven laid down on his back by puny weaklings that he created and put his arms out and watched them nail him to a cross and being faithful to God in the midst of that pain. The blood going out and I would, I would have tapped out before, soon as they, soon as I saw the cat of nine whip, all I would have had to say to sing it, well, I said, what, if, what do y'all want me to say? What, like what? Like just shut it? Oh, we can shut this down real quick. I'll say whatever you want me to say, long as that big old burly dude don't hit me with that bone and metal and that leather whip. But Jesus got scourged. I said, this is for something. For, this, this, is, this, is, this is for Yvette. This is for Erica. This is for Darius. This is for Thomas. And he stayed there and held his own faithfully. And then carried a cross after that. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Hallelujah.
Father, we thank you for this time. In Jesus' name.